welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 22 for November 18th, 2010. Episode Donovan. 22. Yes. yes, Ken. How are you? I'm just fine today, fine today, fine today. Uh, and looking forward to three fine issues. Yep, it's going to be a good one. So this is uh, basically the last episode that will be focusing solely on Pike. The next episode... He has guest appearances, but he's not the main character like he like he is in, in these three. So this is our second-to-last Pike episode, but it will be the last Pike being the main character of, two, of all the stories. Right, and then the third one has nothing... Oh, actually, no, it does have to do with Pike, too. He just oh, pops third... up in all three of them. Yeah, no, that's why we picked these three, because yeah. he's yep, the main yep, character yep. of all three. That's right. Uh, but then next week... Um, the focus is really on Kirk, but uh, Pike is a, a big guest star in those two that we'll do next week. Cool. All right, so this is episode 22, and we're going to be reviewing Star Trek DC Series Volume 2 Annual Number 4, which came out in March 93 called To Walk the Night. I'll do the synopsis for this one, and then we'll do um, a couple of the IDW Alien Spotlight episodes. Or issues, the Vulcans and the Orions. Oh, yeah. So, I'll go ahead and get us started then. So, To Walk the Night, March 93. So, this is an annual, so it was a little long. So, bear with me here on the uh, synopsis. All right. So, basically, this is the DC version of Spock's first mission on the Enterprise. So, the cover has Spock climbing out of the ground, kind of like a zombie coming out of a grave. It's kind of a weird picture. So we start off with Captain Pike and Dr. Boyce discussing Spock's odd behavior. It seems that he's been walking up and down the corridors at night uh, instead of sleeping. Boyce reminds Pike that Spock could be feeling guilty for disappointing his father or abandoning his responsibilities back home if he was not a Vulcan, that is. So I guess they don't know that Vulcans do have feelings, they just suppress them. So we hit. We get uh, Jose Tyler and Mia Colt. They're walking down the hall discussing Tyler's past lovers when they see Spock. Uh, they ask him why he's not sleeping, and Spock says that he's working out some information on the Rigel uh, mission that's coming up, uh, which we all know is the Rigel 4, which will go badly. Uh, he walks away from the couple, and Colt wonders why Spock is just walking around if he's really working on an upcoming mission. So we get Spock's internal monologue, or internal thoughts, and he's thinking about how different and ridiculed he was on Vulcan, and now that he's also an outsider on the ship and within the Federation. Uh, he notes that the uh, moment in time is the time of harvesting there on Vulcan. On board the, the Bridge of the Enterprise, the leader of the Beta Trilocus uh, <laughs> Mining Colony contacts the Enterprise and pleads that they come a- and help them. 
Uh, he thinks that the whole colony is possessed by alien ghosts since they are all acting very weird and having the same nightmare. Pike decides to go ahead and detour the ship and they beam down to the mining colony to investigate. Transporter Chief Pitcam does state that when that there's an issue with the transport and that he suspects that it's something to do with uh, something on the planet. He's able to compensate and the crew are able to beam down successfully. So it was kind of a close call there. The crew meet up with a man who went crazy 48 hours ago and Boyce and Spock uh, state that the problem will require more time to investigate. Pike then calls number one and tells her to go ahead and beam down more science and medical personnel. He does tell number one to stay on the ship and not to try to do more work than that of 12 women, which was kind of an odd saying. Pike and Boyce and the colony doctor named Barbara Asajan, they're having a disagreement about the illnesses being a natural event. Uh, Barbara demands that the Enterprise remove the colony away from the ghosts, which Boyce continues to make light of. So basically he's making fun of them being possessed. In a very Aliens-like moment, the mining off, uh, official disagrees with Barbara because of the loss of the mining revenue. So it's kind of like how the big corporations looking after the money and not the people. So Spock and Colt are shown investigating while Spock finds that there has been an unusual number of meteor hits in the last uh, few months or short time. Uh, the colonists claim that is nothing and that there is a and then there's a confrontation between Colt and Barbara with Colt saying, "I may only be a yeoman, but even I know better than to run from a pack of ghosts." So again, she's making light of the, the possession as well. All right, so number one finds Mr. Scott. Yes, we're talking about Scotty. Yes. Uh, working on the backup propulsion control module. Number one tells him that she needs his help analyzing the data from the surface. So back on the planet, Spock requests permission to go out to the surface and investigate some of the meteors directly. Pike refuses and tells Spock not to go out there. We see Tyler investigating or interviewing with the uh, colonists. As he's doing so, one of them tells them that she thinks the aliens want the colonists off the planet because they want it back. And right. then she goes crazy and becomes extremely violent. They think that they are onto something when they notice that there's when they notice that there's a slight toxin called elibrium, which kind of sounds like being drunk, elibrium, uh, in in their blood. So the colonists have this this slight amount of toxin in their blood um, and it's discussed that uh, it's not really enough to cause a problem but it's the only constant that they can find so after a few more outbreaks of people going crazy Pike and Boyce discuss uh, that Barbara might be right and that the best way is to relocate the whole colony Boyce points out that even if they do that they'll have to be quarantined since they do not know what the, what's causing the nightmares and they could be bringing it along with them Later, when this is mentioned to Barbara, she is understandably not happy about that at all. In fact, she then becomes uh, possessed herself and starts attacking the two Starfleet officers. While fighting her off, Pike gets a message from everyone that the entire colony has become crazy. Once she's subdued, Pike informs all crew members to meet in the main hall. He then discovers that he cannot reach uh, Spock. So we see that Spock has actually disobeyed the orders, and he's actually on the uh, surface with a stolen containment suit. He's feeling the presence calling to him, 
or he's feeling a presence calling to him. Back aboard the ship, Scotty finds that the single source of Elibrium on the whole planet, and it's actually where uh, Spock is heading to. So we see Colt and Tyler are guarding the air purifier. When they're attacked by two colonists, Colt is able to blast them both, though. So she's quite the shot in this one as well. All right, so Spock finds the site of Elibrium, and when he finds some tendrils of protoplasm life forms. So it's all one life form, but they're all like little tendrils. Uh, For some unknown reason, he starts to feel weak, and he actually just faints. As he's laying there, one of the tendrils kind of curls up next to him and actually starts taking his form. So now we see Pike and Boyce coming up over a ridge, and he sees that there's two Spocks laying uh, side by side, one in the containment suit and one just in his birthday suit. Uh, Boyce confirms that the protoplasm is actually one of the creatures, and it's, and it's actually alive. He then uh, states that the duplicate of Spike is actually draining his life force. Pike blasts the life form, and the main creature grows larger. Soon, all the crew start to lose strength, and they are, and duplicates start forming. Spock is able to wake up, and then he blasts uh, the thing to stun the the main protoplasm creature. Uh, the crew is able to wake back up and uh, get back to the colony. The, uh, once there, Spock explains what's happened. Some aliens have seeded planets with these protoplasms. And they basically wait there until some other sentient life shows up, and then this they absorb the memories and actually take the places of the uh, uh, the aliens or the life forms that that uh, that they absorb. However, the human mind has caused it to become confused, and the duplicates started to think that they are actually human. Then Spock drops the bomb and forms that er- that all the colonists are actually just alien duplicates. So basically, long story short, the colony has been overtaken by these creatures and duplicated. So, so we get Pike stating that since they're not human, they're they're not humans being haunted by aliens. They're actually aliens being haunted by humans, or the the memories of humans. The crew then beams back. The colony is allowed to continue being the absorbed protoplasm creatures. And we actually get a little joke at the end where Pike says that he hopes that Spock does not take over the ship uh, as an encore performance for disobeying his orders. Oh. Spock says that he has no idea what he he has no idea that he would ever do such a thing. Oh. And the end. A little nod to the Menagerie episode. Yeah. At the end. So, like I said, this was a long and very dense story. It was. It was a good story, but it was a bit long. Yeah. So uh, it was a, a difficult, more difficult to uh, synopsisize. Yes. But you did a fine job. Fine job. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Ken. Hopefully uh, that made all that that all made sense. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like like many of these stories, there are certain parts you just got to go with. But yes, it made sense. First off, let me tell you something you can't you cannot possibly know if you're just listening to us unless you actually get the comic and take a look. Is that Pike has a mustache. <laughs> so when I was first looking through this comic, I was saying, who's the guy with the mustache? And then I, I start reading and I see, oh, it's it's Pike. He, I mean, he looks like a traffic cop or something, you know, without yeah. the uh, without the mirrored aviators. In, in some of the pictures, he actually has like a really high forehead. 
So it it threw me at first too. I was like, who's this mustache, high forehead, almost bald looking guy? And then <laughs> some other shots. It looks just like Jeffrey Hunter, but right. with a mustache. With a mustache, yes. So uh, yeah, that's that was a little weird. So obviously he shaves this off before too long because the cage happens not too long after this, right? I mean, right. if this was the mission right before Talus the Rigel Four. Four thing, which was the mission oh. right before the Talus. R- oh, right, 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 right. Exactly. Yeah, because they were on their way to Rigel so that they can fight the giant, uh, the giant Rigelians. Exactly, big guys. Yeah, which of course you did that issue. Uh, a very good issue. Very good story. So something I did forget to do at the beginning was. Uh, the credit. So the, we'll go through the credits real quick. Uh, we have writer Michael Jan Friedman. Penciler is Gordon Purcell. Inker is Pablo Marcus. Letterer is Bob Piana. Uh, colorist is Tom McCraw. And editor is Alan Gold. So the writer, Alan Jan Friedman, was doing a lot of the Star Trek The Next Generation comics at this time. And he obviously is a, a big contributor to the Star Trek novels themselves. Yep. Been a lot of those. Yep. He's had some good ones. Yep. But but he was pretty much the regular writer for the uh, Star Trek The Next Generation series, which we haven't really read any of. We read the miniseries, but we haven't done the uh, the actual main series yet. Which I look forward to getting to. But it's it's kind of nice to be in this past mode for a while. Yeah, Looking I like it. What happened in the early days? Yeah, so this this story, you know, you mentioned the Rigel 4 episode, which was in the early voyages, which we reviewed a couple of episodes ago. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was the Marvel continuity. This this obviously has a lot of differences from, from that continuity and... Also from the continuity that we will get in other IDW stories, and also different from the the novel continuity, which you know the the Captain Pike novels, which I thought was weird. I mean, the IDW part well, I thought was weird because we've already reviewed Spock Reflections number two. You remember that one? Yep. And in that one, that was supposed to be Spock's first mission aboard the Enterprise. So we'll talk more about the differences between this and the IDW story once we actually get there but uh, I did I did think that the uh, the difference between this and the uh, existing uh, novels that were already out at this time need need you know this came out in what 1980 1993 so in the late 80s there was a novel called Vulcan's Glory by DC Fontania and in that one uh Scotty was aboard the Enterprise, so that kind of holds up. But but we got a completely different story of uh, Spock's first mission, and we also get uh, and Colt is not on the on ship on the ship yet. So hmm. that that part kind of ties in with uh, the early voyages, with Colt being a replacement later on. Right. Well, you know, considering all these novels and comic books that are are written uh, at different times, different writers, different everythings, um, but still about the same uh, time period, 
the the Pike years. Right. Um, yeah, I'm I'm just I'm kind of surprised in all these different versions how how much continuity there is. I mean, uh, there's always a Colt and there's always a, a Jose Tyler and uh, you know a lot uh, Doctor Boyce, although he might look different from incarnation to incarnation. It's kind of interesting seeing all the things that they do bother to make uh, con- constant. Right. Well, I mean, they basically take everybody that was actually in the episode, the cage, and and use them. But then pretty much anything else other than that changes from series to series. Right. Although well, this... it, in Menagerie, I mean, did they did they actually talk about Jose Tyler? I mean, I, I know who he was in 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 the uh, in the episode. He was the blonde guy, youngish. Yeah. Uh, but. Did they actually mention his name and stuff? I, I don't. I don't remo- remind, remember that kind of detail. Well, according to IMDb, his that was his name. Well, and that could have been written in the script, but right. you know whether they actually mentioned it verbally. I don't know. But yeah, I don't know. I'd have to watch it again. But I mean, but but still, and I agree with you. Like uh, the the transporter chief here, Pitcam, right. or however you say his name. Right. I mean, he was in the episode, but he was never mentioned by name. Yet, in this series and in the I, uh, IDW series and in the Marvel series, they always use the same name. So it must have been in some show notes somewhere. And, exactly. And they're all using the same. They're all using the that as their basis, and then they all just kind of go into slightly different directions. Right. Yeah, and the script could have said uh, transporter officer whatever says blah, but you know, hey, they might have actually put names to everybody in the script. Right. But no, I totally agree with you. And, you know, we've talked about continuity, you know, what is and isn't in continuity. And I always chalk it up with anytime you deal with time travel, then then pretty much anything goes. So this this story to me is just as valid as any of the Marvel stories and any of the novels. And in my mind, I just chalk it up to, oh, I'm sure there was a time travel story somewhere that, that made it slightly different. <laughs> yeah, sure. Or, but, you know, in the end, <laughs> these are all just stories. I mean, they could be anything. Yeah. no. I mean, I mean, the fact that they put as much continuity as they do in here is uh, is good. I mean, look at what they did in those early Golden Key comics. <laughs> there wasn't much effort there. True. No, I really like I like this story, and uh, and I think it it's a good just one shot. Sure. A few other co- comments I may have. Um, it's funny how they always find a way to isolate the landing party. I'm not crazy about the way they did it in this case, but there always is something in the atmosphere or something on the ground where they can't just pluck them out of the, out of danger. They got to leave them stew there for a while. So they did that here. What well, was that? But, done. Well, was that actually? I know that when he beamed down, they had a problem. Yes. But was it ever mentioned again? Because they beam other yes. people down later. I thought no, that they no, they, they they had problems. Okay, because I thought the reason why they weren't beaming them up was that they thought they could be contaminated. And that's why nobody was coming up. But, but they sit down all those other people, and I didn't hear about there being a problem. Yeah, I'm pretty sure there is. Okay, I mean, there might but... be. There were also some interesting parts where um, <clears throat> there were definitely clues along the way there about what was really going on. Like there's one point where Boyce is talking about the colonists and how 
they're all superior specimens, which is like, they're all superior specimens. What group of people, any group of people, would you say where everybody's a superior specimen? Yeah, but I thought that was just, you know, the, they, this, this colony only brought, brought, I didn't catch that as a, as a, uh, as a clue. Okay. Well, I mean, I thought it was more just it like clue. this. The I mean, you're probably right. I just missed it because I thought it was more just a, you know, a selection of you know they only picked the best people to be part of this mining thing because because this is actually one of the only stories that, or one of the few stories that was really about, you know, an, a greedy corporation type thing. Right. And the guy didn't want the colonists to leave because, you know, the mining guild or whatever would would lose money. So he kind of turned into the bad guy, and then you don't you don't see that too often. You don't see greed being the motivation, unless you're a Ferengi in Star Trek. Or um, Pasha, was that the name? Uh, in in the most toys, the uh, the guy that uh, kidnapped uh, Data. Oh yeah, well he was he wasn't going to sell him. He just wanted to collect it, right? I yeah, but I mean his whole thing is he's a trader that was rich. And was able to have the resources to actually kidnap a uh, a Starfleet officer. So anyway, that that episode also showed the seamier side of humanity that hadn't quite become enlightened yet. Right. Yeah. So there is a spot. Uh, physically and mentally, these colonists are superior specimens. Hmm. And hmm. anyway, so um, and of course we know we got, we want our very best people becoming miners. So I don't know. It just didn't seem to add up to me, but um, you're probably right. It's just I missed it. In the colonist blood, um, I thought it was great seeing Scotty. It's like I had no idea Scotty was on the Enterprise this far uh, back. Yeah, it threw me at first because uh, I hadn't read that Vulcan's Glory yet when I yeah. when I first read this, and I was like, "Why is Scotty on the Enterprise?" <laughs> but uh, but no, I liked it. He didn't really yeah. have a big part. I mean, he figured out where the 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 mineral was there on the planet, but I don't think you necessarily needed Scotty there to do nah, that. You didn't. You didn't need that at all. And you never saw him. I mean, the the uh, the Rigel uh, during that pro that that incident. You never saw him in that comic book or that episode. Yeah. Or or the following one. Uh, at Talos Four, you never saw him there. He was never part of the engineering staff. That I, that, yeah, he was never in those. You're, you're talking about the Marvel series. No, now I'm talking about uh, he wasn't in Marat Menagerie. No, I mean, no, he was not. So, but obviously he was there because he was. You know, if you're talking about boom, 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 three big incidents that happened in in the Pike Enterprise era. I mean, Scotty was around on the ship for the first one, so you'd think he'd be around for the Talos Four. As yeah. well as for the um, the original Cage episode pilot. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, he didn't yeah. pop up in any of those. In this continuity, he would be there throughout the throughout the right the next two stories, which which really we only see the Cage in this continuity. Yeah. But in yeah. the Marvel continuity, I don't I don't think it's implied that he's there. Right. But. Uh, but but yeah, I mean it's totally explainable why he wouldn't be in the cage because he's not chief engineer. Uh, he's just so an engineer. He's just I mean, yeah, he's just a yeah, he's just a worker bee. Right. 
a young ensign or whatever. I don't I don't know if it ever says his rank. His rank. I, I don't I don't think it it bothers. They just call him Mr. Scott. Uh, another thing I was surprised about, uh, which is a little different from the the Marvel continuity, is I always thought of uh, Tyler as being a wimp, wimp daddy. Uh, I mean, he was always pining for cold. Oh, me, oh, me, oh, me, whatever. But he is kicking some butt in this issue. Well, everybody is. This is a one. Once they start blasting those those crazy colonists, I mean, they both get right. into the action. Yep. And uh, and there's this one there's one panel where uh, Tyler looks like he's almost like a superhero guy with a little smile and a sure wink in his eye as he totally KOs some guy. What page is that? Uh, let me see. Page numbers thirty one. So there's uh, actually thirty. Page thirty. Oh yeah. That bottom left. Yeah, he grabs the grabs the phaser and then. Oh he. Yeah, yeah, the bad guy grabs the phaser, the colonist has the phaser, and then uh, Tyler just cold cocks him with a strong, knowing look on his face. A furrowed brow. Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, 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 the smirk is, is kind of funny. And then the next yeah. panel shows him kind of rubbing his knuckles. Yeah, right. But later on, when he and Colt are, are guarding the air purifier, he goes down pretty quick, and then it's Colt who shoots Tuesday. everybody. What you expect? Me as a firecracker. Yep. I did think it was funny just because we did just come off of the Marvel series and and Colt and Tyler are, you know, a love interest there towards the end. Right. But, you know, at the beginning of this, you have them walking down the corridors together and basically he's talking about his girlfriends or whatever or his <laughs> other girlfriends and I'm like, you know, I, I know this is a different continuity, and this even even if it was in the same continuity, this is way before they ever started dating or anything. I just right. thought it was a little weird. Yep, I thought the protoplasm monster, especially towards the end, you know, when they're when you're trying to take take Spock, and then uh, Pike and the Doctor are like in front of it, and it's like this huge tentacled thing, like from the end of the Watchmen or something. I thought that was kind of. Uh, it was hokey, but eh, it's fine. Space monster. Yeah, well, I, it was funny because there's a, and I know I've mentioned it before in past episodes, it's another novel, but it's the um, the Vulcan Soul trilogy where the Vulcans come to Romulus and Remus, mm-hmm. you know, kind of their whole story. Right. Well, there's a life form that's on Remus that, that's kind of like a lava protoplasm thingy. Yeah. And in it, it doesn't reform people, but basically it what it does is it kind of takes over their bodies and becomes them. So even though they're still the body of uh, the Vulcan, uh, it's actually like really inside of it is really this like protoplasm life form thing. And it's learning about, you know, how to interact with these 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 life forms that have come to the come to the Remus planet. Sure. But uh, I thought that that, you know, the similarities between those two stories were yeah. more than just a little bit. Interesting. But you know what story this 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 reminded me the most of? What? The uh, old Twilight Zone episode with the mannequins. Uh, I don't remember what it's called, but basically the whole story was about this woman who thinks that all the mannequins are 
moving and talking to her and stuff like that. She thinks she's going crazy. And then at the end of the episode, you find out that she's that she was actually a mannequin and that she was supposed to come back a long time ago. But because she forgot that she's really a mannequin, that she's been living this life as a human. No. <laughs> you remember that one? No. I don't think I ever saw that one. Oh, wow. It's one of my favorite ones. Oh, cool. But I, I, I was kept thinking about this because, I mean, basically all these protoplasm creatures think that they're humans. Yeah. And I guess we'll keep living their life as humans um, once the so Enterprise they will. leaves. Exactly. And what is their lifespan anyway? Can yeah. they reproduce? I guess they can reproduce, I guess. I don't know. They wouldn't But have, not like a human would. Yeah, they wouldn't have a human template. They would have to have people come down and sacrifice themselves to become... Oh, baby. no! No, I, 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 I wouldn't like that. Yeah, that was my big thing with this story, is that the ending... This is... Yeah. To me, this is worse than anything that the Telosians could have done with their whole mind powers... Anybody who comes to this planet is going to get absorbed by this alien, and then the alien is just going to take over their form so that they don't know that they're really an alien. So why wouldn't the Federation put like some sort of ban on this planet? Or I don't know. mining colony or whatever it is. But if they've already... I mean, who... Did they have left... Yeah, they, did they have leftover protoplasm? Uh, they might have. Yeah, I think so. I don't think I they mean, killed it. Or destroyed it. I mean, it was still coming out of the, still coming out of the cracks when they they were shooting it, and I thought it just kind okay. of retreated. Okay, so there definitely is a lot more st- out there that has not specialized its cells into human clones yet. Right. Yep, I'd say it's dangerous. I say kill them all. Yeah, I think they should do a, uh, like they did in a couple of those gold key stuff. Just ha- do a, a flyby in the Enterprise and just blast the whole planet. That's it. <laughs> Ashes. Just just glass the planet. But but you see what I'm saying, though, right? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah I agree. I, mean, I, I, th- I, th- I think it was extremely enlightened of them to just say, oh, you know, no harm, no foul. All the colonists are dead, but, you know, yeah, it, was yeah. the, it was the alien's nature. It's like, okay. Well, yeah, that's just, that's just how they re- reproduce. You know, that's right. Well, maybe it's my nature to glass the frickin' planet. I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Edit that out, will you? Well, I mean, if you want to use that logic, then you, I mean, then then you shouldn't stop Godzilla when he comes to attack Tokyo because eh, he's just he's just doing what he does. Exactly, <laughs> he's just he's just doing that Godzilla thing. I mean, he's just doing just, what he does. Just because he's killing thousands of people, he can't fault him. He's just he's just doing just just doing what nature wants him to do. Exactly, he's just a little mischievous. Yeah, I don't know. I just thought that was a little... It was a little abrupt ending, and, and yeah. the ending didn't quite make sense. But, but overall, I really liked it. Yeah. And, you know, we, we talked about the mustache, but the artwork I thought was really good. The Scotty, yeah, it is pretty good. Scotty looks just like a young Scotty. Number one looks really good. Spock looks good. Yep. And Boyce looks not quite like the actor who played Boyce in the movie uh, or the TV show. TV show. I mean, this guy has darker hair, but... Uh, he looks more like Boyce than the the Marvel series did. Right, I agree. I just want to know why why Pike shaves the mustache off in the next morning when he wakes up before they get to Rigel Four and is like, "Yeah, <laughs> I'm done with this." Yeah, yeah, moving on. <laughs> Anyways, okay, is that it for that one? I think so. Because uh, that was a long issue. 
and that did take up a chunk of time. So, shall we move on to the next one? Yes, let's. Alien Spotlight, Vulcans. So, IDW uh, has put together a whole series of different comics that are focusing on the different aliens, or many of the uh, many of the different aliens uh, of Star Trek. The best ones, I think. Um, and the first one, naturally enough, uh, is going to be Vulcans. Well, so, this is this is the first one that we're reviewing. I think the they're not numbered, so I can't remember which one was the actual first one. But we're just yeah. picking the two that had to do with Pike. Yes, and this is the first one that we reviewed, so that's what I was kind of meaning. Oh, okay, I thought you meant the first one that, that IDW put out. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I have no idea of the order. Although they all have dates, so I guess we could figure it out. Yeah, if you give me two seconds, I can tell you, because I have it. I have it all down. It was, because they've done two miniseries they did a, a miniseries, uh, a five-part miniseries, each issue dealing with a different race, and then they right. did another five-part. Let's see. So the first one was The Gorn, actually. Oh, was, cool. Which is actually a pretty good one. It's based uh, just prior to The Wrath of Khan. Um, and then the second one, Vulcan, which we're going to read now, which has to do with Pike. The third one was Andorian. Uh, which was Next Generation Timeline. Uh, fourth one, Orion, which again is Pike. Uh, the fifth one is Borg, which is actually right before Nemesis Timeline. And then the sixth one of that series was Romulans, which is kind of the the original series. It's when um, Romulan Commander that we see in Balance of Power, played by Mark, Mark Leonard, it's about how he gets that first cloak ship. Oh, cool. So Interesting. So, okay. Sorry about that tangent. Go ahead. No problem. Okay. So, October 2007, Alien Spotlight, Vulcans. Creative team uh, story was suggested by Rick Remender. The uh, final story was written by James Patrick. Art, Joseph Maria Barroy. Color by Mario Boone. Color assist by Andrew Elder. Letters by Chris Mowry. Editor Andrew Stephen Harris. Okay. Cover shows uh, the famous pivotal scene from First Contact where the Vulcan emerges from his science and exploratory ship and is giving the live long and prosper hand sign of greeting to the gathered Earth people. Yeah, and just to cut you off real quick, that's actually just one of the covers. There was actually uh, four covers. So there was that one. Then there's another one uh, that's just a picture of Spock, a drawing of Spock. And then there's a third one where it's actually just a photograph of Spock. So, depending on which issue you got, you might get the other co- uh, the other cover. Hmm. So it's kind of like um, some of those uh, TV guides where they had uh, different potential covers. Yeah. For the first several, first several IDW series... Every issue had a different cover, so I guess they were trying to uh, promote collecting. Buy all four. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Okay, so um, opening page presents a full panel with the Enterprise in orbit around (laughs) Magifirus 3. The captain's log explains... They are on uh, Pike and the crew are on a diplomatic mission 
to help a peaceful minority group within the aggressive and violent Megaferans society to achieve peace in their war-torn world. Pike states how he has doubts that they can help persuade the planet's uh, generals to put down their weapons. Apparently, the Megarefians are uh, so focused on war, they actually discovered warp drive, but abandoned it because they could not make a weapon out of it. Amazing. Spock is new on the Enterprise, and not fitting in well. In particular, Lieutenant Tyler dislikes Spock, and thinks the ship would be better off without him. Spock's cold logic that has yet to be tempered by consideration for human morals and social mores has angered many crewmen, in at least one case to the point of attempted violence towards Spock. Tyler does not want Spock on the away team that Pike pulls together to go down to the planet. However, uh, Pike overrides him by stating Spock's uh, highly likely value uh, to the mission. The landing party beams down to a scary planetary surface, strewn with wreckage, fires, and humanoid bones. After the landing party is down, they realize they are not at the planned landing coordinates, and communications are being jammed. They are almost immediately accosted by a group of megafarians in leather trench coats and teeth sharpened to nasty-looking points. The megafarians open fire and shoot crewman Reed square in the chest. The landing party run for cover, dragging Reed with them. For some reason, Spock needs to adjust the frequency of their lasers, and he states he does not have the proper tools to fix the communicators to overcome the jamming. After the adjustments are complete, the, the landing party breaks cover and take out all their attackers. Whatever adjustment Spock made, it was good. Spock suggests they move before reinforcements arrive, but Tyler says they can't move Reed. Spock insensitively suggests they should leave Reed and take his equipment, to which Tyler gets really irate. Reed dies, which settles the impasse, and then the team plans their next move. Tyler suggests taking the jamming device out so that they can communicate with the ship and beam out be the best plan. But Spock disagrees and wants to uh, find their civilian contacts. Taking out the jamming device using violence will not help them to try try a non-violent way of life, Spock says. They almost come to blows when Pike breaks it up and decides to take out the jammer. The landing party splits into two groups and attempts to uh, attack from two different sides and take out the jamming device. Unfortunately, their attack fails, and they are all captured. The uh, violent Megafarians uh, beat up the entire landing party pretty good, but are flummoxed over Spock, who appears to have no fear. The Megafarian leader confronts Spock and asks what he is. Spock tells him he is a Vulcan, a race of people not unlike his own in their distant past, distant violent past. Spock tells them his people mastered their emotions and found a peaceful way forward before they destroyed themselves. Spock genuinely relates to these people and wants to help them achieve enlightenment. The leader does not believe Spock and attempts to get a rise out of Spock by cutting his hand deeply. Spock does not even flinch and shows complete control. 
The Megafarin thug is impressed by this and agrees to listen to Spock tell of his people and how they overcame their self-destructive violence. Cut to some kind of medical center where the Megafarians are patching up the landing party and listening to Spock. Spock met later with their civilian leaders and impressed them also. After days of discussions, they were able to get the different factions to at least start talking. Though a long diplomatic road lay ahead, the mission was considered a success. Aboard the Enterprise, Pike meets with Lieutenant Tyler and tells him Spock is staying aboard because he is such a swell guy and because he brings much to the crew. Pike tells Tyler that he and the crew are great and that they need to start behaving like it. They need to grow up and get used to Spock being part of the crew. Tyler says he will try his best. The issue closes with Spock on the bridge and Pike saying Spock's journey and Spock's greatness is just beginning. Okay, so this was a a relatively brief issue and the story was uh, expeditious unlike the the previous book and um, although it is is a flawed story I think uh, it's not too bad. Not bad. No, it wasn't I, too bad. No, I don't. I, I like I like the third one better. Sam, we're saving the best for last. Yep. So j- just so that uh, we kind of put things in perspective, uh, this book we just read, The Vulcans, three dollars and ninety nine cents when it first came out of the th- at the uh, comic book shop. Hmm. Uh, issue number four, the annual number four that we read at the beginning, which came out in ninety three. $3.50. So, roughly the same price. And the uh, the annual is probably, what, almost three times as long as this one? Right. So, I mean, nothing against IDW. That's just that's just the way comic books are now. So, it's, it's kind of sad. Yeah. But also a good point is there's no ads in the IDW. Nope, they save all Where, the ads to the end, and they're all just about other IDW series. So, right. no, you're absolutely right. So, you know, they got to get their money somehow, and I guess they must figure uh, people will pay more money, I guess, for a better product without having, you know, too much, uh, too many commercials inserted in the middle of the story. Well, I mean, you say that, but it's three dollars and ninety nine cents for. Spider-Man and ba- and Superman and Batman too, and and they still have the, you know the candy. I don't know how I don't know how much candy there are being advertised, but it still has the advertisers in there. So, right. so I will agree with you. IDW has has been pretty good about not putting advertisements in there. Right. Just a few. So they sacrifice. There's, there's a few movie ones at the end usually, but that's about it. Yeah. Anyways. So. But so not bad, not bad. No, I like it. Like like right. you said, just a little. It's a little short. Yeah, and the um, and the artwork. It's a, it's a not, little different. It's a little different. Um, definitely, all the men have incredible pecs. And and the lips are very are are, are very defined on all of the characters. Yeah, which I find to be a little annoying. Yeah, they all or, or like distracting they have, anyway, distracting a little bit. Yeah, they all have big eyes and really pouty lips. Yeah, especially like when Tyler's being beat up. I mean, 
I don't know. Some of these pictures of him just laying on the floor, kind of looking up at the uh, the aliens, kind of comical. <laughs> so, uh, what did you think that, or who do you think these aliens look like? Uh, well, they kind of look like vampires or something, but uh, they're pretty nasty looking. Yeah, so uh, they're, they're green. So they're, supposed to... they're green, and they have the little sharp teeth, like you said. Right. And they're all wearing these weird hats or helmets. Now, yeah, they kind of they, they kind of look like they're Nazis or something or stormtroopers or something. I don't know. Now, when I first looked, when I was first reading this and I saw those guys, I was like, "This looks like what Jay Leno would look like if he found the mask instead of Jim Carrey." Nah. <laughs> oh, that's that. You know, gosh, you know. Now that you mention it, I think I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> it's not. A- <laughs> they all have these huge prominent chins and they're all yeah, they do they have true. that plasticky green mask looking face right right okay the mask but the nasty mask yeah because well, they're nasty people so it would make they them are look nasty. evil yeah yeah and I can I, just I can just see these guys showing up on Babel or something in a diplomatic thing I don't know yeah but if they did, they would probably play it up that they look nasty, but they're really kind-hearted. <laughs> mm. I don't know. They they hope kittens out of trees. Yeah. Well, I I don't have a lot to say about this. I didn't I didn't think that uh, I didn't like the ending where Spock's just able to convince them that no emotions is good, and that suddenly they're not going to be at war anymore. Because of just what one guy says. Yeah. Yeah, it was it, it was kind of a, a stupid pad ending, quite frankly. Um, kind of hard to believe, but that's how they chose to end it. Yeah. When uh, when the when the guy was cutting Spock's hand, it it reminded me of a movie that Christopher Reeve was in before his accident, uh, where he played a guy that was pretending to be crippled. Did you ever see that? Mm, I don't think so. Yeah, so basically it was like a courtroom drama type thing. And uh, he's supposed to be, you know, paralyzed from the waist down. At one of the... And, and you... I kind of ruined it for you that I said that he's he was crippled, but... Uh, or that he yeah, was that, faking. That's really okay. But anyways, what what I'm getting at is that the uh, this they're trying to prove that he's faking... So this guy takes, just in the courtroom, he whips out this knife and just stabs it straight into Christopher Reeve's leg. And he doesn't move at all. He just sits there and he's like, he's like, I told you, I can't feel anything. And then later on, they, he, when he, when you find out that he was really faking, they find out that it was uh, just, you know, mind over matter kind of thing that, that he was able to just mentally block the, the pain and, and have no, um, you know, he didn't try to flinch or anything. Right. Anyways, kind of what Spock was doing when he was getting cut, because, you know, he still could feel it, even though he well, just wasn't he responding to it. Yeah. And that's another interesting point, because um, through the entire original TV series, you know, I, I I always got the impression Vulcans did have emotions. And the only time Spock ever had an emotion was when he was in Sun or some kind of alien influence or something. But um, definitely, since then, I, I personally think there was a lot of revisionist stuff going on where, uh, ooh, Vulcans feel all this stuff. They just never show it. So it was like, I don't know. I, I thought 
I thought in the in the original series he didn't have emotions, but yeah, because there's that one I, episode I I where where he's being forced to have emotions, and McCoy just keeps yelling out, "You're gonna kill him! He can't laugh!" or something like yeah. that. <laughs> oh, that's right, that's right. But I I don't know. I definitely agree with you. I think they they backpedaled a little bit. Yep. But I thought it was more that you know they they were just keeping the humans in the dark that that they just didn't let on to the humans that they really felt they just didn't express it. Right. My last comment about the uh, book is that there's a really cool scene where Spock's looking through binoculars. Uh, and they kind of look like normal binoculars, which is old-fashioned, like uh, contemporary binoculars. But and then next to him, another crewman has a phaser with a with a scope on it, with a sighting scope on it, and it looks like it's on some kind of weird futuristic tripod kind of thing, which only is actually a unipod. But uh, I never saw saw a phaser before with a sco- with a scope on it. Where was this? Oh, okay, um, I see it. Yeah, you see that. Yeah, the, it, this yeah, there's there's no there's no page. Yeah, there's no page numbers, but I found it. Um, yeah, that is weird. Is that is so, that is that a yeah that is a stand? It's on some kind of weird stand, and it's got a um, it's got a scope on it. Reminds me a little bit of a uh, man from Uncle or something. Yeah, but what would the one one legged stand really do? Steady your aim. I, that's the only thing I could see, but. Now, I, I, it's, I think it's just a little gimmicky is what they did. I mean, the scope's one thing, but having the stand, I think the stand's a little bit overboard, but whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And and the scope looked kind of cool. Makes it kind of look like a Star Wars blaster type thing. No, well, yeah, Star Wars too. I was thinking Man from Uncle, but yeah. Yeah, they, uh, George Lucas's property people in England had a temp- tendency to throw scopes on everything. Hey, it worked. It did. I think uh, some of those uh, blasters were damn cool. It's amazing what you can do with a German Mauser by just uh, throwing a few extra parts onto it. Yeah, just have you ever seen those in person? The some of those original props from the movie. No, but I do have a prop re- replica of Han Solo's blaster. I'm looking at it right now, and it. Is obviously uh, a German. I, th- I think Mauser is how you you pronounce the, the the gun. But yeah, but I'm sure that that replica has been painted to look really nice and everything. But w- when you see the real ones, you can tell that they just threw it together, maybe oh, maybe spray painted a little bit. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. But they knew that there was no close ups on them, so they didn't really go through all the effort to make it look super nice. Right. So I. Every time I see them in person, anytime I see a real movie prop in person, I'm always a little, a little, uh, you know, a little disappointed. disappointed. Yeah. Exactly. Well, uh, in the Smithsonian, when they had the uh, Star Trek ex- exhibition, where they, and actually even Vegas, in the Vegas thing, um, Star Trek Experience, whatever it's called, uh, you know, they had some, some uh, wardrobe pieces, they had some props. And you look at the Star Trek stuff, and it's like it's just a piece of, it's just a little block of wood, kind of carved up a little bit with paint on it. Exactly. Oh, that's a phaser. Uh, that's not very impressive. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, and even the like the the you know the the consoles and everything, 
you know that when you see those in person, you know the Star Trek ones. I mean, right. you could just—they're just a piece of plexiglass with some some paper shoved in there to make it, you know, whatever whatever you, they were supposed to be typing on. They just kind of slid it in there to right. and kind of backlit it, I guess, a little bit. Right. So yeah, it's always a little disillusioning when you see it in person. Exactly. Exactly. So I have one more note on this issue, and then then I'm done. And it is about the the discontinuity between this IDW continuity and the other IDW Pike story that we had in Star Trek um, Spock Reflections number two. So in that one, Pike actually says this is the very first mission that that Spock's ever been on, huh. and that was the whole wormhole creating on the lava planet thing remember Spock falls through and Pike jumps in and saves him right but there is a little interaction between Spock and Tyler in that one and basically Tyler like invites him somewhere and Spock refuses or he doesn't refuse but he politely refuses and Tyler makes a comment like oh well I tried but I didn't get the feeling like he hates him like like this story I mean that's like the you know the the main thrust of the story is how much everybody hates Spock because he's different, right? Which seemed a little out of sorts to me, right? And especially you know we talked about continuity not matching up from publisher to publisher, but I mean but that's that's the same publisher. Yeah, well, but from writer to writer they want to emphasize certain bits of the story to make conflict or contrast or whatever to right. get their point across so gotcha hey hey artist was it uh, artistic license right okay shall we go on the next one yep please so let's just jump straight into star trek alien spotlight orions cool this was published by idw and has a cover date of december 2007 so the writing was done by scott and david tipton Art by Elena Casagrande. Colors by Mirko Prefredicki. Sounds good. Yeah, letters by Chris Mori. Mori. Edits by Andrew Stephen Harris. And covers by Elena Casagrande and Zach Howard. So those were the two... um, to art covers and then there was another cover which had a picture of an Orion slave girl I'm assuming from Enterprise um, but she's kind of kind of dancing but the two art ones are really nice one one has uh, an Orion woman kind of standing up with her uh, kind of this little shawl thing around her waist and the other one shows an Orion kind of laying on a table with her feet kicked up. Um, so, very, very good covers. Yes, uh, very good artistry, accentuating the um, sexual lusciousness of Orions. Yeah, the uh, Elena Casagrande, she does all the internal internal art, and uh, and it's pretty good. So, <laughs> we'll talk about that in a minute. Mm-hmm. All right, so we this is uh like I said Captain Pike uh, issue. Um, this timeline would be after 
Kirk has taken over the Enterprise and is on his five-year mission, but before Captain Spike run in with the Delta Rays, which we covered a couple of episodes ago in Captain's Log Pike. So we start off at a club called Ackner's Heavens, which is kind of maybe an intergalactic brothel of some sort. Uh, we see a nervous man named Knox, and he's allowed into the private uh, into a private room to have an audience with an Orion dancer named uh, Liata. Uh, it seems that uh, it seems that he gets what he wants if she gets what he wants, if you know what I'm saying. And all she wants is just three words, which she gives her, and it's he's on Babel. And then it kind of pans out, and uh, uh, he's getting a little bit of loving. What he wants. Yeah. So now we cut back to Babel, um, and we see Fleet Captain Pike kind of mumbling to himself that he's been assigned to Babel as kind of a publicity, diplomatic-type stunt. He's walking through a bazaar. And he notices the Orion Lieta with a knife about to stab a Tellarite male named Muso. Pike breaks it up, and then the Tellarite tries to kill Lieta with a gun. Pike knocks the gun away from out of his hand, and Lieta is able to escape through some impressive gymnastics. Pike suspects that Muso was up to no good, but he's not allowed to do anything based on uh, the higher-ups. They don't want to cause a diplomatic incident, so he's not given permission to question Muso at all. So Pike just takes it upon himself to watch him. So uh, eventually he goes ahead and disobeys orders, and he sneaks into Muso's apartment. There he discovers that uh, Muso and his cronies are actually bounty hunters of some sort. He overhears them talking that he, Pike, is being targeted for an, uh, an assassination. Uh, while he's hiding there in the apartment, he finds Lieta, and she's hiding there as well. And when I say lighting, hiding, she's actually just uh, sitting on the bed, waiting. Uh, she's planning to kill Muso for him killing her sister in the past. They're actually confronted by the Tellarites, and, uh, and a big fight ensues. A few hired guns are taken out, and then Pike is about to get shot by Muso when Lieta sneaks up behind Muso and knocks him out. As Pike tries to talk Lieta into telling the authorities what she knows about her sister's death and everything, uh, Muso wakes up and grabs her, and he threatens to shoot, shoot her if Pike does not let him go. Uh, Lieta do, then does this great flip over his, over his head and confronts him on what he did to her sister. She's about to kill him when Pike says that if she kills Muso that she'll have to kill him as well. She ends up giving Pike the gun, and we flash to sometime later, sometime shortly later, and we see Muso being handcuffed and carried off by the security team. Uh, Lieta ends up giving Pike the data that she has on Muso, and uh, she's about to give him a little kiss when they're interrupted by a security officer. Pike deals with him, and then when he turns around to see her again, she has vanished. And that's the end of the story. So he never got that kiss. No. Or what could have happened afterward. Oh, you think that uh, he might have got more than a kiss? I think if not interrupted, perhaps. <laughs> hmm. Now, let me first say the drawings. Yep. 
the Orion as played by don't remember the actress's name but she was a beautiful uh, blonde uh, in the cage and of course in Menagerie beautiful uh, blonde woman of course all made up to be an Orion slave girl or whatever and uh, she was great but that girl ain't nothing compared to these drawings I'll tell you um yeah now was she the same woman who played Mira or Mina Mina yeah yeah S- same woman right same one only with a lot more makeup right now, that's not the only time that an Orion was in the original series, was it? I know that was the main one because it was – that picture was like the last frame you got in the credits. Everybody. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, right. Right before the Desilu logo. Exactly. And I, and I think that might have been uh, Roddenberry's personal choice, I'm guessing, because <laughs> he liked the ladies. Roddenberry liked the ladies. But I think the, there was another episode with Orions and – in the original series, wasn't there? I don't oh. remember there being one. Uh, Naturally, a... Enterprise had, had had Orions. Yeah, in uh, a few episodes. Yeah. yeah, I might be I might be mistaken. Yeah, maybe. I, I don't remember specifically though. But uh, yeah, I totally uh, I get what you're saying, and and her little assassin outfit, the wear the one that she wears to actually do the assassination, it, yep. it basically consists of. Two pieces of cloth, uh, kind of over her uh, breast area, just being held together by a couple of ribbons or just one ribbon, maybe. Uh-huh. I mean, it's just like uh, there's no way that would have stayed on <laughs> <laughs> with all the, uh, you know, high flying Jedi like almost uh, gymnastics going on. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it looks good. I'm not gonna lie to you. You know. <laughs> so a nice short little story again. I know I liked it. Yeah, and, you know, on a personal note, um, I could not get this Orion comic because I'm buying all these in back issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, for whatever reason, hey, I've been on mute. How, when did you stop hearing me? Uh, you cut out for just a few seconds. Oh, well, I looked down and it was red, so I thought, well, maybe... Uh, no, it was not for a long period of time. Oh. All it right. was, I well, mean, really, it was just like maybe a second or two. That's it. <laughs> All right. So the the other alien spotlights were really easy to find, but for whatever reason, this Orion one, I could not get, uh, or at least could not get for a reasonable price. So I actually ended up getting this one um, off of iTunes for my iPod Touch. So it's the first time I've read one of these that we're actually reviewing on the Touch. Uh, and I think I think it translated pretty well into the the digital format. Yeah, yeah, that's where I read mine. So we so, both had to buy the application from iTunes. Yeah. So uh, and then then later after after I did that, I did end up finding the issue. Uh, I actually bought like a lot of of ten of these um, Star Trek Alien Spotlights. So I actually have both of the art covers of the Orion one. So the one with with her laying down and the one with her standing up, which I usually don't buy the alternate covers. I'm not a big alternate cover guy, but, you know, I got them all pretty cheap, so I can't complain. Right. Good. But but anyways, but yeah, good good issue. It's good to have the real stuff. It's good to have the real, real paper. It's true. 
Yeah, I think Liata should have killed the Tower, right? He was a prick. So, uh... Yeah, the... Yeah, and that little flash where it shows kind of a flashback of what he's doing to her sister. Mm-hmm. It's pretty ominous little few panels there. I mean, because it, it kind of shows... So it shows her confronting the Tellarite, and while she's reminding him what he's doing, off to the right it shows kind of a a picture that's kind of tinted in red, so obviously his memory of it. And basically you see this Orion woman kind of cringing on a bed, and then the next panel shows him standing above her with a knife, and then the next panel shows him... Uh, walking out, you just see the knife with with blood dripping off of it, and then you can see the bed in the background with this prone form of the uh, of the woman laying on it. So it's uh, it doesn't mince words. I mean, this dude is not a nice guy. No, not at all. And so I mean, get away with anything. Yeah, I don't know if he just murdered her or if he did something before he murdered her, but. And again, I guess this was supposed to kind of be a you know diplomatic immunity type story. You know, right. You see a lot of them, especially in the 80s and early 90s. It seemed like a lot of movies were focusing on that, like you know the Lethal Weapon 2 and, and other ones where basically these diplomats can come from other countries, do whatever they want to, and, and you can't do anything about it. So I think that's what this story was kind of supposed to be like. Right. But, I mean, he's like a full-blown crime lord or whatever, not just some guy that did one bad thing and is getting away with it. Right. He's like a the job of the hut for the Tellarites. <laughs> he is. He is. And in the end, Liata, who at the beginning you weren't sure what she was, uh, manipulating, scheming, underhanded, something or other, turned out to be quite the hero at the end, even sparing the Tellarites' life, even though she should have killed him. And uh, I thought it was great seeing uh, Pike in his older years, in his little um, little adventure. Does he have the graying temples here? I can't remember. He has graying temples, yes. Yeah. He has graying temples. But No, I liked it. I thought it was a good yeah. story. Another nice touch was seeing Commodore Mendez as, as the upper officer that, that Pike contacts. And he is who? Oh, Commodore Mendez. He was the he was the head guy in Menagerie. So the the the, the senior officer uh, that was on the Enterprise. Yeah, that, during that, the. Okay, that's so actually kind of like the trial kind of thing of Spock. Yeah, that's actually with Kirk when they decide to follow the Enterprise, and then halfway there, the guy just suddenly disappears, and you find out that it was really the the Logians. Exactly. Yeah. Where is yeah, that? Oh, okay, I see him. Yeah, and what's cool is he looks like him. So uh, the actor, I have no idea what the actor's name was, but he was also the like the kind of boss guy in It Takes a Thief. So I think they did a pretty good job of, of drawing the real actor. Hmm. So, or a reasonable job, anyway. Well, here on page 9, which I'm assuming is the one you're talking about, the the last panel, the, the far left-hand panel on the very bottom has kind of a close-up of him. And uh-huh. to me, he looks like uh, like Dr. Smith from Lost in Space. Oh, Will. What are you talking about, Dr. Smith? Wait a minute. i got to look this again. this again. 
Yeah, I mean, the other two pictures, he doesn't look anything like him, but they do like this close-up of him where they're kind of cutting off the top of his forehead. Oh. He kind of uh, looks Dr. Smithish. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. Yeah, and I'll say that the, 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 the artist's work, not only, only Liata, but, you know, the artist's work in general is good with this, this IDW, but there are a few weird bits, like especially some of the looks on uh, Pike's face. And some of these, uh, <laughs> some of these panels are a little bit weird too. But uh, yeah, I guess that guy does look. I guess he could look a little like Doctor Smith uh, when you cut out like most of his head or the right. top and stuff. Right. Because he definitely has a receding hairline. You know what I would have liked to see after the uh, after Pike becomes Fleet Admiral or Fleet Captain. Uh huh. He should have grown the mustache back. <laughs> <laughs> No, and I'm not a big fan of the Tellarites. Right. They were in a couple episodes of the original series, but but here I kind of like them as being kind of almost Ferengi-like before there was Ferengi. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, with the kind of pig face, like really easy to hate them. Yeah, but I'm just talking about, you know, their motives. I mean, they're all, you know, really selfish and conniving. Mm-hmm. Money grubbing. Uh, yep. So, anything else? Nope. All right. So, real quick, go over what else was coming out during these uh, two time frames. We're talking about 1993 and 2007. So, uh, that first one came out in March of 93. And the only other thing that was going on that wasn't comic book related was a next generation novel called Grounded by David Bischoff. And I didn't grab the synopsis, so I don't know what it's about. I've read some of the other David Bischoff stuff. He wrote some Aliens books that that I thought were pretty good, if I'm remembering right. Cool. Alien vs. Predator novels. Mm-hmm. Anyways, back to 2007 when these two for, when these two came out. The Vulcan one came out in... What did we say it was? Oh, yeah. October. So the last of the William Shatner novels came out in October called uh, Academy collision course which that's like the only one I haven't read but I just wasn't that interested in hearing about how the main reason why I didn't want to read it is because it has Kirk and Spock meeting each other in the academy and I was just like they can't because Spock's so much older than Kirk right but then the new movie came out and they kind of did the same thing right I kind of bought it because in that one Spock was already a you know, an officer, and mm-hmm. he was just there. But I don't know how that William Shatner one's going to be. So, but I well, it, was so such I a gr- well, such a great name. I don't know. I mean, it's got to be great. Well, it, it is Shatner. It, it is the Shat. It's the Shat. The Shat. All right. The other novel that came out that month was a Next Generation novel called Q and A by Keith R. A. Uh, DeCandio. And um, I actually accidentally skipped this one because I was going to try to read all the post-Nemesis books in order. But uh, I somehow skipped that one. I read the next one, which came out in November, called Before Dishonor by Peter David. But that one I missed, so I need to go back and read that one. And also in November, um, not really novel-related, but the uh, that was the month that the... Star Trek the original series 
the remastered versions uh, with the new special effects. Season 1 came out in the HD, DVD, slash DVD combo discs mm -hmm. that I still need to get. <laughs> and uh, and then the other thing that came out in November was the Star Trek Conquest video game for the Nintendo Wii and the PlayStation 2. So it was kind of like a Risk-type game, except you were dealing with all the planets and you would take over a, a species and you would just go from planet to planet and build your resources up and stuff like that. It's uh, it's a really simple game and I play it all the time. So I'll just get on a kick where I'm just playing this game over and over and over again. It's a good game. Cool. Alright, that's it. So next week we will do Star Trek Annual Number 1 deals with Captain Kirk's first mission aboard the Enterprise. And like I said, Pike has a as a guest starring role. And uh the number two one, annual number two, has to do with the uh Kirk's last mission aboard the Enterprise. And they may make another trip to Talos four. So again, Pike has a pretty big part in that one too. Those should be fun. Sound like excellent next uh, issues, especially as we get back into Kirk and Spockland. Yeah, time so period. This will be a good, good little way to ease out of Pike and back into uh, Kirk and Spock continuity. Exactly. exactly. All right. So, any closing thoughts or recommendations? No. Although uh, a tear comes to the eye as we start heading out of the early Trek years, but heading back to our, our our most familiar time period. Yep. And characters. So Now you say this is the, er, the earliest Star Trek years, but... Uh, oh yeah, we, you, you gonna, you gonna lay Enterprise on me? I'm gonna lay Enterprise on you, because because <laughs> you know the 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 photo no, the photo cover of that Star Trek Orion's and the photo novel of uh, the photo cover of Star Trek uh, Alien Spotlight and Dorian's both had pictures from Enterprise, so okay. an Orion from Enterprise and and uh, an uh, Andorian from Enterprise, and that's all the coverage that Enterprise has ever gotten in a comic book. Yeah. There's a couple of covers of an actor that's that just happens to be that species. Well, I must say that uh, the Enterprise Andorians were great. They were great, but Enterprise was great, and I just don't understand why there's no Enterprise comic book. I'm sh well. How about well? I mean, I I think there's definitely a feeling that it was not a, su a success, even though it was on a lot of years. I mean, it was four seasons. It lasted longer than good. the original series. Exactly, but uh, I don't think in that time, except for maybe the very beginning, that it had the kind of ratings people were hoping for. Yeah, but I mean, I know that we were at that time. Star Trek was really oversaturated a little bit because uh, they were cranking out a new movie what every couple of years, and it had never been off the air in what fifteen. 20 years. Yeah. Plus a lot of simultaneous series. Right. So I get that, but that doesn't mean that you should just ignore it. I mean, we're getting Pike was only in one episode ever and he's <laughs> he's obviously got a lot of love in all these comic book series. A lot of love. 
and you know Archer was captain for four years and he has got squat <laughs> <laughs> well you know now he's a man of a certain age and uh, he's he's off doing other things so ah, what do you want uh, anyways alright so we'll see everybody next week okay sounds excellent next time on Star Trek comic book review <laughs> I love saying that Good night, everybody. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name ST Comic, second name Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.